We're looking forward to having uh, Mr. Philbrook come and fill our pulpit next month. I bring you greetings from South Penobscot Baptist Church and specifically from Ted and Merrill Freeman. We uh, have very much enjoyed and have been blessed by their presence with us. Turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter I got, I got to read my I got, so things have changed since the last time I was here. I have to use these things now. Matthew chapter 12. I'm going to begin reading in verse 22 to sort of set the stage. But our target passage is verses 38 through 45, as it says in your bulletin. Hear the word of God. Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and who does not, whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. And I did skip a verse, didn't I? You brood of vipers. Jesus had awful nice things to say about Pharisees, didn't he? You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth mouth speaks. And now down to our target passage. In verse 38, begin reading. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil An adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah, the prophet. 
For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in, at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than at the first. So it will be with this evil generation. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, may your word be spoken here this morning. Lord, from my lips, would you speak forth your words that bring life? May you pour out your spirit upon those listening here in this congregation, those downstairs and those listening live or those listening to the recording of this message. Lord, thank you for all you've done and all you're going to do. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. February 25th, 1964, the world of boxing heard these words. I am the greatest. I shook up the world. I am the prettiest thing that ever lived. <laughs> now, I wasn't born. I, I did not hear these words live at the time. But these are the words of Cassius Clay Jr., otherwise known as Muhammad Ali. And he was speaking to the press after he had beaten Sonny Liston in Miami Beach. Now, maybe he was the greatest boxer at the time. He was certainly at the time the youngest uh, heavyweight champion. But his record got beat so that he was no longer the greatest. And so it has happened to every boxer since then. Everyone since then has eventually gotten beat. So no one can say they're the greatest. Our passage this morning tells us that Jesus... Not Muhammad Ali, nor anyone else that takes the title great to, ex to include Alexander, the great. Jesus alone is the great one, the true great one, to whom all peoples owe their allegiance. What I want to do for you this morning is I'm going to take a short walk through Matthew up to this point where we, we take a look at chapter 1 where Jesus identifies with all humanity. There are Jews and Gentiles in Jesus' line, and by his very birth, he identifies with every last one of us. And in chapter 2, he's the one in whom the Gentiles hope, for it is the Gentiles that come and bring him gifts of homage. 
In chapter 3, he's proclaimed to be God's son by none other than God himself by the pouring out of his spirit at Jesus' baptism. In chapter 4, Jesus in full submission to the will of God becomes the first human ever to beat the devil and to send him away defeated. And then he, then he begins preaching, repent, for the kingdom is here. In chapters 5 through 7, Jesus demonstrates that he is, he is the king who restores the law. Oh, by the way, that he gave in the first place on Mount Sinai. He restores the law to its rightful place and gives us the culture of the kingdom that is very, very upside down. In chapters 8 through 10, Jesus displays many healings by which he authenticated his authority to establish the kingdom, which kind of leads us to the audacity of the Pharisees in this section of 11 through 13, where Jesus challenges the popular notion and continues to set the standard of the kingdom. It is with great audacity that the scribes and Pharisees come to him now and say, Sir, teacher, we wish to have a sign from you. It's like, really? A sign? Like, what have I been doing these last year or two? Our message to the original audience this morning is that Jesus was, is the great king and has given ample proof of his greatness. And that they must not, they should not have presumed to stand in judgment of him, for he is the one who would actually judge them. The scribes and the Pharisees here, they ask Jesus for more signs, presuming to stand in judgment as neutral, autonomous parties. But Jesus exposes them as wicked and idolatrous. He calls them a brood of vipers. One of the things I learned about vipers this week was that they give live birth to their young. Some rattlesnake, in fact, all rattlesnake species give live birth to their young. So when Jesus calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers, there's nothing but evil coming out of their hearts. A stunning and condemning thing for him to say as well he should have but you know we're not so terribly different are we we too believe in the myth of autonomy oh we claim that oh yes Jesus is Lord Jesus is King but what we really want is a God who makes life easier we want a God who doesn't embarrass us we had the audacity to say, if Jesus doesn't give me a happy marriage, or if he doesn't get me into the right school, if he doesn't make my children successful, if he doesn't keep my children from drugs, then what good is he? God, we had this thought in our minds, do we not? That God owes me a good life. Because I do so much for him. Well, this passage in all the book of Matthew, in fact, the entire 
record of scripture that we have says this basically, there is no such thing as neutrality. There is no such thing as being neutral. We are either, we are either on his side or we are against him. You and I have committed high treason against the Lord God Almighty. And we stand condemned, awaiting execution. But there's good news. Jesus, the God-man, has taken the death penalty for our treason and granted those who believe in him a full and complete pardon and a perfect record of righteousness. And that our, our only response to this, our only correct response, the only logical response, the only sane response to this message of the gospel is to abandon all attempts at being righteous in and of ourselves and to embrace Jesus as our king. So I want to talk to you this morning, as, as you can see in your bulletins, talk about this passage under three headings. One, the myth of neutrality. Number two, the peril of rejection. And three, the greatness of our king. We'll start off with a myth of neutrality. In verse 38, we read, give us a sign. We want to see more, Jesus. What you've done isn't good enough. Even we can cast out demons, although they didn't do it quite as quick as he did. Give us a sign. It's sort of like my grandson. My grandson Hudson lives in Alabama, and Joy and I got to go down and and, uh, visit with him and with my daughter and my other grandson. But little Hudson, when he gets up in the morning, he has certain things he likes to eat. But sometimes those things get boring to him. And while his mother works so hard to give Hudson the things that he likes to eat, you oftentimes will hear this come out of Hudson's mouth. I want something else. (laughs) Well, aren't we like that? And weren't the Pharisees like that? We want something else, Jesus. We want to see a sign that only God can do. Never mind healing lepers like anybody ever did that. Never mind casting multiple demons out of someone as if anyone ever did that. What does Jesus say? He says, you wicked and adulterous generation. Verse 39. No sign for you except the sign of Jonah. He says, as Jonah was three days and three nights, which incidentally is just. Hebrews speak for three days. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. Excuse me. For three days and three nights. Only God could do a resurrection. Jonah was as good as dead. I've never been swallowed by a fish, but I would not have much hope for coming back if it had happened. You won't see it. You won't hear about it, Jesus was saying. And you will be judged for your rejection. Or excuse me, you won't see it. You will only hear about it. And you will be judged for your 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 rejection. As the scripture says later on in Romans, it says faith 
comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, by the word of Christ. Friends, you are either trusting in Christ alone for your righteous standing with God or you are his enemy. Men and women from all over the world have heard this message and repented at the preaching of it. And they will witness against those who want to claim neutrality. There is no neutrality. Jesus said earlier, if anyone is not with me, they are against me. Neutrality is a myth, which leads us to number two, the peril of rejection. Basically, in verses 41 and 42, Jesus says the Gentiles are going to judge you. Those people who you think are beneath you, those people that you think are cursed because just because they were born are going to be the ones that rise up and judge you. All kinds of sin will be forgiven. Jesus talked about earlier in verses 30 through 32. But don't discount, don't profane the work of the Holy Spirit, he says. You know, when we have it in our minds that someone that we know, someone that we see, or maybe even a politician is beyond hope, without God in this world, and we live like that. We treat them like that. We are denying the work of the Spirit, the work that God's Spirit is able to do. Folks, we should pray for our leaders. We should pray for our governor. We should pray for our president, our vice president, our congressmen and women. All kinds of sin will be forgiven. And we... Know that Jesus defeated Satan, disrupted the demonic hold that he had on this entire nation of Israel. And now he tells the nation of Israel and its leaders, repent or you will be worse off. Kind of reminds me of the book of Hebrews. And actually that it led me there in my study this week. The book of Hebrews chapter six In verse 4 we read, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore again to repentance since they are crucifying again the Son of God to their own harm, holding him up to contempt. Folks, it's not just. It's not just those that are outside the walls of this church that are condemned. Folks, we too need to hold on to the gospel. We too need to remember that though my sins are many, that his mercy is more. It's not only for the unbelieving skeptics, but it's for the church members, too. They must continue in the gospel. He talks about having been enlightened. 
cause to know, to illumine. In 1 John chapter 1, the, the, the apostles said, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. This fellowship that he's talking about is more than just having cake and cookies after church on Sunday. It's a, it's a deep commitment. Folks, we must be committed to one another. We must be committed to the body of Christ. This fellowship, you know, when a doctor goes and, and practices with a group of doctors to learn a new skill, to learn a new surgical technique, it's called a fellowship. And what they do is, they, here's what they don't do. They don't go to this fellowship and get corrected on their technique and look at the doctor correcting them and say, don't tell me what to do, I'm a doctor too. They don't do that. No, they submit to the discipline. They, they covenant together to learn a new surgical technique. That's what our fellowship is to be like. When, when God, through the fellowship of his people, points out our sin, we confess. We ask for prayer. We run back to the cross where we find grace and mercy. And it's not just a one-time thing. Happens all the time. And this is what, what the Hebrews writer is saying is, is that now you are responsible for those who are listening to me right now. You are responsible. I am responsible for submitting to the gospel. There's no middle ground here. The writer of Hebrews is saying that if you have been enlightened, if you have tasted or become partakers in this fellowship, if you have known what it's like to live in the kingdom blessings, that if you fall away, it's impossible to be restored to repentance. There's no more hope to offer. There's no such thing as a Christian who rejects the fellowship of God's people. Folks, there are no Lone Ranger Christians. There is no hope for those who walk away. Brothers and sisters, please hear me. Don't fall away. Don't reject the Son of God. Neutrality is a myth. The cost of rejection is your eternal soul. But number three, we have a great king. Just as Jonah came out of the fish, Jesus walked out of the grave. The great victory is all the proof that we will ever need that God is on your side. You see, in the resurrection that Jesus talked about in verse 40, coming out of the grave, Jesus, in Jesus, God put his money where his mouth is. No other God has done this. Islam claims that Allah is merciful. But he never, ever would you find recorded in the Quran, the Haditha, or any other of the Islamic writings, never will you find that Allah took on flesh and acted in mercy toward his people. 
Now that the cost of reconciliation has been paid, we have a taste of the kingdom to come. The kingdom to come, Matthew 22 tells us it's like a wedding feast. It's like the finest steak and those $500 bottles of wine. That this wedding feast to come that Jesus promised to those who put their trust in him is like the first kiss from a first love. Folks, Jesus is the prophet greater than Jonah. He's a wise king greater than Solomon. Jesus is also the great high priest who bore the cost of our sin in his body. Here's the question to us this morning. Are you on his side? Have you trusted in Christ? Listen, life is hard. Sometimes life throws us a twist when our children walk away from Christ. Life throws us a twist when when there's not quite enough fish to go around in the ocean, when the lobster catch doesn't come in like it should, or when COVID strikes and our businesses fail. Is Jesus enough? Is his righteousness. Can you, do you trust him? Folks, there's no neutrality. We don't get to sit in judgment of Jesus or of God's work in our lives. Rejecting him in favor of your own goodness or your own plan is to guarantee doom to yourself. Jesus is our only hope. Trust in him. Join his people and the fellowship of the king. For in him is our hope. Let us pray. Lord, you have shown us by your resurrection that you are God. You have shown us That not only are you God, but you came to fulfill your promise. That you would take our sin upon yourself so that we could be reconciled to you. You came to fulfill the promise to Abraham that he would have the whole world. And that all the nations in him would be blessed. Oh Lord, would you increase our faith Would you make us wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for you? For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.